Life will always be as tough for Alice Class as the South Bronx neighborhood she was born in. But that doesn't mean she'll ever give up. She's the main character in the book, Don't Want to Fight No More. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. I'm talking with author Kiki Loyal about her latest book and the main character's struggles and perseverance. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Robin. Nice being here. I'm glad you came this early morning, this early Sunday morning. How would you describe the book's protagonist, Alice Class? Alice Class is a fighter. Alice Class comes from the South Bronx, tough woman, and reflects a lot of my own personal struggles. So uh, I needed her in this book to extract a lot of what was within me. How much of the book was you and how much of it was, you know, pulled from maybe other people or your imagination? A large percentage of the book was was about my life um, growing up in the South Bronx and attending Fordham and learning the ropes of life and also a combination of other people's tales, other people's stories and how they interacted with me and how it influenced my life. So, Kiki, give us a little insight into your main character. Um, what makes Alice so special? Alice is special because Alice has faced so many struggles like many other people have. But there were several struggles in her life that led her to almost end her own life. And to rise above that, it takes a strong woman to do that. And she is just somebody who constantly fights. And as the title says, don't want to fight no more, reaches that point where she wants to throw in the towel and say, I don't want to do this anymore, but realizes, honey, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you have to fight. I don't mean to sound insensitive, but if she did just quit and give up, that would be a choice. So what is it that draws her to keep getting up, keep putting on those boxing gloves, even at times when in the book it describes they're slipping off? Um, what makes her or motivates her to keep fighting? Faith, faith in life, uh, hope dreams, believing in them, and her children. She has two children that she wants to be a part of their lives. Um, she has seen people in her life kind of just, you know, disappear from her. So it's they're, they're the incentive, the children, and also that desire to want to believe in who she is and believe in her beliefs. Uh, the book starts off with Alice being very young, living in the Bronx with her mom, her dad, her, her sister, and uh, her brothers. Describe to me what life was like for her when she was very, very young. Life was nonstop for her, very dynamic, very visual for her growing up in the South Bronx, uh, seeing people, you know, fall to their death from a rooftop, um, being raised by loving people who had mental illness issues like bipolarity. Like her father. Exactly. Right. And um, also later on realizing that her brother and sister also had um, bipolarity as well. And then later on in life, she learns that she suffers depression that's in the family. Um, but a very harsh life growing up, just seeing things that are just too much to handle at times, but she has this light within her, this sense of dreaming, and, and I could rise above this, um, that just keeps her going. And you said with this book that uh, you wanted to address issues that are sometimes shunned. 
specifically, which issues are you talking about? Are you talking about the, the mental challenges that she went through and what else? The mental challenges and also as a writer, I think it's really important for a woman to be able to feel comfortable expressing her sexual experiences. You know, going into detail, I had um, people react to it and tell me, did you have to go into that much detail about the, you know, the threesome? And, and I was like, yes, it's important. It's important for younger women to understand that you develop, you go through these stages, you have feelings, and sometimes family members aren't there for you because of their mental issues or whatever issues they have. So you have to face these truths all on your own and... That's the reality of it. I mean, there was a big sexual kind of awakening for me when I got to uh, college. Let's go back a little bit to the 70s and 80s. The main character, Alice, was working to pass her region exams to graduate, but she was, quote, making herself physically and mentally exhausted. And she began a self-imposed emotional lockdown. That's on page nine. So was this the beginning of the emotional challenges? Yes, it was a turning point for her. It was her education. Alice knows that her education is her ticket out of the Bronx out of this situation that she's not happy with and studying and, and, and trying to really go beyond her expectations becomes this obsessive thing for her and it leaves her mentally drained. And then the depression starts to set in. And I think at that point we start to see the character kind of realizing, oh boy, there's something not right with me and I'm tired, but I, I, I have to keep going. She sort of has to hold her thoughts and her feelings, partly because of her, her father being bipolar, um, undiagnosed bipolar at this time. And then partly because her family just said, you know what? You don't tell the family business. Right. You, you don't talk about this. It's a big secret. So how much of that was you and how much of that was you trying to help people understand how to cope when they're young? That particular section was a lot of me. It, it was a lot of me because I wanted to send out a very strong message that we all have family secrets, skeletons in the closet, and there are times that we need to let them out for our own spiritual liberation. It's really, really important to be able to do that. So a big part of that was me trying to send out the message that we can't keep that a secret. It shouldn't be such a taboo thing because you have a mental illness that you can't discuss it. But if someone's an alcoholic, it's okay to talk about it. But if someone's bipolar, there's a lot of shame in there. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a topic I really wanted to get very clearly across. When Allison was growing up in the 60s and 70s, there was not necessarily a diagnosis of this person has bipolar disorder and this is what the symptoms are. So our characters having to deal with describing these symptoms without really knowing, without knowing how was that a challenge for you in the writing to kind of build up to there was something wrong, but we don't necessarily name it until later in the book. While I wrote this particular section in the book, I really had to think about Alice and her thoughts about what was going on around her with her mother and her father, especially her father. But I do recall during the 70s and late 60s, they did call it manic depression. Uh, so there was a diagnosis for it. But the father, since it was such a secret, never had it uh, addressed by a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Um, and 
Alice just has to kind of find her way through it and try to understand what's going on. But later on in life, she discovers there's a reason for this. There is a name for this. Um, Alice, uh, like you did, grew up in the Bronx, and the family really enjoyed music. Um, she, Alice played the piano. Uh, she was she would use music when she was studying. When she would get sort of um, stuck, I guess that's a, that's what that's the best way to put it. So, how was music helping to change Alice's life at this time? Well, I'm going to connect my personal situation with Alice right now because when I was uh, growing up, radio <laughs> was everything, everything. And um, I was obsessed with radio. I, I loved radio and um, the music just the it, it was there was so much different types of music going on and I was so into so many different types of music that it became therapeutic. You know, I wanted to to use music and radio to kind of bring out what's inside of the character um, and how she sees life. So how did, let's throw out a song, Comfortably Numb, how did that song uh, affect Alice? Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb, um, that came out, I was in high school. <laughs> and um, there's a point where Alice talks about the emotional lockdown that she imposes on herself because she realizes uh, my parents will not allow me to date. I'm in high school. Um, I can't do really what I want to do. So I'm just going to use my education as a ticket out of here. And I'm just going to throw myself into my studies and, you know, until I, I get to what I need to get to. And, Comfortably Numb describes the character's mental state of, I'm exhausted, I'm comfortably numb. You know, and hearing that song and just hearing uh, the lyrics to it makes Alice feel kind of like there's a place, a comfort zone for me. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Fordham alum and author Kiki Loyal about her new book, Don't Want to Fight No More. What was Alice's relationship like with her father when she was younger? Alice's uh, relationship with her father was loving at first because she was a little girl and that was her daddy. As she grows up in the story, she talks about um, suspicion of, of things that don't seem right, uh, like her father exposing his private parts um, at times and kind of looking and, and questioning. And it seemed like he did it by accident because she'd go to the refrigerator or go to the kitchen and he'd be there in boxers with himself revealed like that. Right. And at one point in the story, it, it's pretty direct. And it says that he's sitting there and he exposes himself and pretty much tells her, you know, do you want to touch it? So, I mean, we're talking about exhibitionism, a form of sexual abuse also being described in the book because there's so many people out there that grow up and they're like, but that happened to me. That was normal. No, that's not normal. That's not normal. So her relationship with her dad was very loving at first, but then she started seeing how he was with the older brothers and sisters. And Alice was the youngest in the family. And she kind of sat there and observed all of this and, and saw that as a child, you know, the innocence of knowing that doesn't seem right. That seems wrong. 
Uh, so her own innocence awakened her, you know, made her open up her eyes and realize there's something not right here in the way things are happening with my dad. So Alice eventually did get that key out of that area of the Bronx and uh, ended up coming to Fordham University. And she said it was like, quote, stepping into another time zone. So why was Fordham, which is the Fordham in the Bronx, so important to the main character? Fordham was a door opener for Alice. Um, And when she walked in, the people, she saw the colorful people that she sees on campus and the interactions she has with them makes her realize, wow, I put one foot out on Southern Boulevard. It's a whole different story. I put a foot in here and it's like a whole mix of everything out there, but everything that's in here and, you know, education, it's a balance of things like her world became real. The world that she wanted became real. And the sense of I can explore this world. I'm safe in here. That's what Fordham meant to Alice in the book, a sense of this is where I need to be. This is where I'm going to learn who I am and how I'm going to survive all the stuff that happens to me. Fast forwarding a little bit, years later, Alice's sister Enid uh, eventually moves back to New York. um, And Enid reveals some very shocking news about Alice's father. Uh, So what was that news and how did it change the dynamic of their family? Um, It gets to the point where life's taking off for her. She gets a job at a local PBS station and things are going good. And then all of a sudden she meets someone And she's on the verge of a very serious relationship with this particular person. And then Enid calls her to come upstate and see her and starts asking her questions about what happened with with dad while I was away. Because Enid went away for like two or three years when Alice was young. And And still at home with the parents. Right. And um, Alice starts, you know, to ask uh, Enid what's going on. And Enid just asks her, did anything go on when you were a little girl so it alludes to a lot but then finally Enid explains to her that she was sexually abused by her stepfather who was Alice's biological father um and that rocks her world but not completely because at the beginning of the story you still see Alice kind of suspecting there's something wrong there's something not right, right. here I can't necessarily put my finger on it just right. yet but that something's not right right and observing the relationship the interactions between the fa- you know her father and the uh, brothers and sisters because um, the father did seem um a bit especially in their young younger years um like she he sort of for lack of a better word, picked on Enid. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess she wasn't completely shocked by it, but she understood it and she looked at it like a betrayal, a complete betrayal. Again, trust. How do you, this is somebody's my father. This is the person I love and trust. How could this have happened? And where was mom and all these things? So a lot just comes out of there. And, um, but she doesn't judge Enid at all. She just sits there and listens to her and and thinks to herself, this person has given me so much in life. It's my turn now to listen to her. It's my turn to be her strength. It comes from within, you know, and I'm a strong believer of of intuition. Um, So I I really put that into the book towards the end of it because um, 
it's really important to believe in that inner voice that you have. It really guides you in life. And Alice starts to really bring that voice to life and make it a part of her material and her spiritual life. And the fact that Alice um, supported Enid did not go well, go over well with her father or necessarily her mother. What was that relationship like for Alice with her parents after this big secret was revealed? It was tricky. It was like a juggling act uh, for Alice. She she talks about... Because dad said right away, didn't happen. Right. Oh. Never happened. Oh, in the book, you know, it even tells you how dad's like willing to swear on Bibles that he didn't do it. And the mother is questioning why Enid took so long to come out and say this. So, and then, the, of course, the father in the story is so possessive of the mother and her thoughts that Alice kind of feels like, I'm in the middle of something and I don't want to be in the middle of this. And the father actually does call Alice and, and asks her, do you believe this? And she says, yes, I do. I do believe it. I believe in it because she already suspected it. So it was a confirmation of something, that inner voice again in her life. Now, Alice had a lot of changes happen to her in the uh, mid to late 90s. Can you share with us what some of them were and how that helped her or changed her character development? Wow. Now, she had a lot happen. <laughs> I think um, in the early 90s, Alice meets someone and it's it's a great relationship and they're they're living together and she describes that she describes uh meeting her partner's um parents parents and dealing with racism because her partner's not latino uh you know he's uh, a combination of different nationalities uh scottish irish albanian and uh, dealing with the mother, who's a big racist, who asks Alice at one point, what do you tell people that you are? So the you know, when Alice and her partner go to Jersey to visit them. Right. You know, she's the, the, the what would become her mother-in-law is just out and out rude. Exactly. And, and I mean, without without even hesitation, just asks Alice in a in a family get together, what do you tell people that you are? And Alice kind of looks at her and says, you know, I'm a human being, first of all, and I've never had to answer such an ignorant question in my life. Also in the 90s, Alice is faced with her sister Enid suffering an aneurysm in her brain. Alice talks about the experience of going to the hospital and seeing her sister, her physical appearance, everything. She goes into such detail that, I mean, I actually had people's reactions, friends who've read the book, they, they said that it was very, very heartbreaking going through that section because Alice really goes into detail about a person who's suffered an aneurysm and is no longer able to speak. They're aphasic. And they can't put sentences. There's no syntax. They're just sounds coming out of, of, of Enid at this point. So the person who was her voice in life her has, support system. has lost it, you know, and she's devastated. But Alice in the story runs on autopilot till later on it changes. And she's on autopilot. Okay, now this happened to Enid. So how do I fix it? How do I fix it? How do I make this better? This is devastating. Um, a very crucial point in her life that makes her realize you can't fix everything in life. So she had the the one-two punch to her because of, 
you know, her loss the sexual of abuse, the sexual and- abuse, the one two punch when she's going to get a divorce, the one two punch when her sister gets sick. Another punch when her father ends up getting sick and ended up passing away. Um, there's a section where she, I love how you mentioned, you know, you could, it's like the, the boxing gloves are slipping off. It's like, how am I going to put these suckers back on and, and fight when all of this is, is happening? So with all these one, two punches, what was Alice's greatest loss at this point in the book? At this point, Alice feels she's lost control of her life. Things are happening way too fast to manage. And the character starts to talk about how she's like walking in a cloud, a fog. And um, she's already in her late 40s at this point in her life. So she's reached a point where what's going on? Why am I feeling all of this? And um, she also talks about the fact that she's starting menopause because her mom had that early on in life. So she describes like all these things are changing right now. Big turning point here. She feels a loss, a big loss of control in her life. Now, um, Alice had a friend uh, named John who was John to Alice. And how did their relationship begin? Alice decides at this point to want to take control of her life of this fog what is this and she realizes that she's lost touch with the people in her past that meant something to her and we see the character John who early on is mentioned in the story it's her first love a very poetic man a very bright man and um, at the beginning of the story they just there's this bond between the two of them Um, And this love that's unspoken and the possibility of having a sexual relationship with John, but she chooses not to do that. She was a freshman in college and chooses not to do that. So it's like that unrequited kind of love in her life. And now it's like about 2013 and Alice is in this awakening stage of her life and she decides to go on. Um, the professional website uh, where people connect the LinkedIn thing and she looks up John and there he is and she starts to cry and looks at him and, and realizes wow he's he's gray but he's still John and reaches out to him and finds out that John has been divorced twice he responds to her right away and it just awakens these feelings of her as, as a woman again, because everything that happened in the 90s, what was going on with her marriage, there was lack of intimacy in the marriage, things started to fall apart, and she lost herself as a woman. And Alice is a very passionate woman. And that that is part of her spirituality in the book, too. So reconnecting with John was this... <gasps> I don't know, like a catalyst for her for change. Something's got to change here. I am who I am. And this is what's lighting up inside of me again. But it didn't go too well for Alice and John. Alice um, eventually had a restraining order against her from John. How did that develop? Alice talks about how much she loves John and how John has expressed a lot of things to her in the emails that they exchange with each other. And she realizes that he's not the same person. This is already going back over 20 years, 25 years. Um, And she starts to express 
her life to him and what's happened and somehow he becomes judgmental and he was never like that with her so things have changed in the relationship it's been a long time and she realizes i can't really open up to him am i insane Am I, you know, he's expressed so much to me. And this happens in real life to people in relationships. You you meet someone and you're like, I know that person likes me, but all these games are played. And I think she, she tells you that in the story. Here I am in this situation. I know I'm not insane. And I know this guy has expressed all these things to me. I see it here in black and white. Then all of a sudden it becomes too much. She, she continuously uh, contacts him. Um, and he is reading her emails and she realizes that. So, but he's not responding. And finally she gets a knock on the door from, uh, a policeman in her local neighborhood who says, you have a restraining order against you. You need to cease all contact with this man. That devastates her because it rocks her world. It makes her feel like doubt. I, she starts to doubt her intuition. She starts to doubt the inner voice, the thing that's led her to where she's at right now. And that's a dangerous place to be for any human being. Then my question for you as the writer, Kiki, once this a restraining order was against the character, she still kept contacting John. Why? What were you trying to have us understand as the character that she continued to contact this man who didn't want any contact with her? Alice becomes a true believer of herself to the point where she questions her sanity <laughs> and decides, I know this isn't really what John wants. I know John enjoys when I send him positive messages because that's all she does is send him loving messages. And in her mind, it's kind of like, how could I be guilty of doing something wrong that is so loving? How could love be so wrong? Um, so in today's society where it's so easy for someone to accuse someone of you're harassing me, you're doing this, and yes, you have to follow court orders and everything. There's this part of Alice that it's just like, it's unbelievable to her that he would have gone to that extreme because of love and fear of love. Um, so I'm trying to put across there to people that you shouldn't be breaking the law, but you know, um, there's this strong belief in in the fact that she's done nothing wrong the innocence about her speaks to the point where she gets into legal trouble but she believes in that innocence there's a part of her that's just like i'm not giving up on this i know that what i feel and what he expressed and what he felt is true this is all just him pushing me away kiki uh in your book don't want to fight no more alice has been knocked down over and over and over again She's gotten up over and over and over again, but she's starting to weave a little bit in boxing terms. What finally makes her fight? The possibility of losing her life towards the end of the book of that very thin line and having the ability to come back from that. She did. She almost crossed that line of, of losing her life. She realizes losing or taking or taking her life. Right. Exactly. Right. She realizes that that's not what she wants she's got more to do. There's a mission here. I'm here and I've been given these challenges because obviously I have a job to do here. No matter how spiritual or non-spiritual you are, it's just the realization of being human beings and we need to move forward and we need to explore and let these things not knock us down. And that whether you have family or you're alone, 
there is something within all of us it's innate and through tragedy alice shows that you can find that strength within you it's called you loving yourself kiki as the author give me an interesting fun fact about this book and and your writing process i am not a drinker <laughs> but during the process i do like to smoke cigars i have to admit to that there were a lot of cigars being lit <laughs> at late hours of the night and a couple of bottles of wine and some vodka at times <laughs> because it was so excruciating um, to try to bring this character to life, to extract what I had gone through personally and give this to Alice and let her be the one to make it real for me as the writer. Now, your writing style has been called raw and honest. Is there anything that you would have done differently the next time this um, experience of writing don't want to fight no more really brought to light my confidence as a writer and the opinions of people oh you shouldn't say that you should be careful just kind of like dismissing it and just really getting into myself as a writer and not letting anything inhibit me in any way what was um, one of the most surprising things that you learned about yourself in creating this book I didn't know I was such a serious writer, but even though the book is serious, there's a lot of humor in the book at the beginning of it. Her college experiences, the humor, it's incredible. It just made me feel more secure as a woman um, and proud of, of where I'm at right now and grateful for the people who have formed the person that I am now. So writing the book was just actual therapy for me. Okay, Kiki, so um, where can our listeners pick up Don't Want to Fight No More? Listeners can pick up Don't Want to Fight No More by myself, Kiki Loyal. Um, it's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com as well. So uh, And Kindle, too. So it's, it's a great book. It's out there. It's gotten really good response, and I'm so proud of it. Thank you so much for coming. I'd like to thank my guest, Kiki Loyal. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kyle McKee. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.